Welcome to the Investment Turnaround. In this podcast series, Dr. Mariana Bosazan interviews world-renowned investors, scientists, and other personalities who share their solutions toward the sustainable transformation of our financial systems. Our guest today is a member of the World Academy of Arts and Sciences, Dr. Mila Popovich. She's the founder of Evolving Leadership, a consultancy and community for transformational leadership with the aim to achieve personal excellence, organizational development, systemic innovation, and planetary pathfinding. She's also a global member of Protopia Labs, the co-chair of the Global Blockchain, a founding member of the Global Women in Blockchain, and an associate expert on ethics and gender issues at the European Commission. Thank you for being here and welcome to our podcast. Thank you, Mariana, and I'm really excited to be able to join friends um, all over the world with you with your wonderful outreach, um, which I think is exciting the way you're building an entire ecosystem of like-minded people for shifting of you know, our global consciousness and for the better futures for all. Wonderful to be here. Well, thank you. What happened in your life that put you on this path? Was it pain or pleasure? What specifically happened in your, in your past that made you arrive at this point in time? That's that's a very poignant question. Um, what it is that triggered this evolutionary growth and got me to where I'm at. And I, when you said what what is the trigger, uh, it seems that it's a joy as this mixture of contrasting and difficult experiences, right along with, um, if you will, what's called peak experiences, sense of um, elation, sense of high inspiration, equally as it is the, the the harsh realities in which we live. Um, so for me, if if on an instant I would recall what are some of the key moments or, or thresholds in my life, um, I would say that as long as I remember being conscious or being able to, to self-reflect, um, I had this aspiration um, deep down somewhere in my core that always had me looking up into the sky and wondering, um, you know, who else is out there, the dreamers and the stargazers. And it's fascinating to be able to do this even in this very moment with you, Mariana, because we have come to the time where the online technologies um, enabled us to um, to connect this way with these stargazers, if you will, that I call. That's all I remember from a small um, place that I grew up at in former Yugoslavia. Uh, one of the most powerful social projects in the world that um, that lasted for a while and due to some ma massive geopolitical shifts, um, it, it got dissolved. But I come from a part of it, an ancient part of the world called Montenegro, um, at the intersection of East and West. And those were powerful, um, you know, uh, world gateways, if you will. Um, and there was a combination of the um, political curse and a cultural blessing in the sense that politically we have always been at that strategic place with some crucial resources that made us a prized piece of real estate, if you will, over which many forces have veed for, for power and control. Culturally, it has been a tremendous, tremendous blessing because we were able to garner um, information, influences, and heritages from variety of intersecting cultures and um, civilizational influences. 
So it was the, the it was palpable um, in the in the region the, this richness of influences as well as the the threat, if you will, uh, um, of of potential um, disturbances and turmoil, as they have indeed repeated many times. So there's a heightened sense of being um, and hypervigilance of sorts within which I have grown and developed in, in my generation as well, as I have also been on the threshold historically as the last generation that graduated within the um, Yugoslavian system. And then the continued repackaging of the region and of the country has happened. Um, and then and, you know, when I think of that, there's something about, you know, something in the being that always wondered, um, wide-eyed explorer or wonderer, if you will, combined with those socio-historical and socio-economic conditions. And then, you know, civil wars have happened when I have witnessed exiles, refugees, devastations, um, somehow through that process, through tremendous collective struggle, um, there was a sense of bursting into the world, a sense of losing the home by gaining the world, the sense of utter devastation that engendered extreme um, motivation to apply oneself in the world, to be of meaning, to be at the times when everything meant meaningless, seemed meaningless, and and meant complete annihilation of, of any sense-making. At that very moment, some, somewhere deep down in my core, um, I, I latched onto that aspiration. I latched onto that fire in the belly, if you will, the breath itself. And... Uh, out of that, I reached for a sense of higher contribution and higher uh, application or self-giving in the world that I felt would only worth a lifetime. So, I mean, there are many, many um, other moments in life, um, times when, you know, you're faced with massive decisions, um, such as moving to the U.S., and that's a story to tell as well, because I got here through almost a funny movie-like um, situation of winning a, um, a visa to the U.S. through a green card lottery, which was so, so um, a game-like, uh, and then ended up understanding the implications of that. I didn't seek exile in the U.S., but I did, um, but I did realize the there's, there was some kind of orchestration on my path that took me to the Rome of the day, if you will, to the superpower of the day and what that position meant for me personally, but also professionally. And it's it's a, also a stretch, as always it is, the growth always happens within that profound contrast. I come from a very tiny country, 700,000 people with ancient roots as being an ancient kingdom. And I always joke and call it a lotus of its own, where it's a beautiful white flower with deep, deep, muddy historical roots. And then I came to a country that is a young democracy, a superpower, and, and a continent in and of itself almost. 
So there was a profound contrast between the two, and a profound contrast with Montenegro, who has always been a Highlanders country, we've always been independent and freedom fighter, fighters, that kind of Highlanders mentality and code of conduct. But when the civil wars hits, Montenegro refused to be um, drawn into that, um, which is really fascinating because it felt, it didn't feel like it was a noble fight. There was no freedom fighting. There was brother against brother. And interestingly enough, the very same uh, kind of Highlanders proud country became the refuge uh, for all the exilees and refugees from all different warring sides. So that at one point, I think the tiny little country had 12% of its populations were refugees from all sides and all parts of that region and managed to sail through it. And there was another pivotal moment. Again, um, the country has a long way to go in its development, but it set some precedents in its history um, that make me that make me think of it in such loving and, and proud ways, if you will. Um, that in 1991, the civil wars were still raging, um, but somehow, in the midst of that madness, somehow, um, a group of people in the leadership came together and decided to proclaim the country the first ecological state in the world. And even though, as I say, we have a long way to go, there's something about setting that point of reference so resolutely high that now everybody's gaze, everybody's alignment, if you will, is of the one looking up of, of in that way in which I have mentioned that as a child, I kept looking up into the sky. And um, those are two pointers that were decisive and points of pride while at the same time the U.S. has its own st struggles right now to redefine its identity, to refine or retrace its direction and reposition itself globally um, with the leadership that it's had for so long since the World War II. And now we're going through a very interesting redefining and transitional and transformational phase here. So with these, some of these personal and professional and historical markers, in between those coordinates, I found myself thinking that the best I can do is work hard, study hard. And I probably shouldn't use that metaphor of, of working and studying hard, but I should say in the most, in, with, with the utmost inspired responsibility, I decided to apply myself on whatever stage I could. And indeed I found the academic stage I found the artistic stage. Um, so whether in the professional domain of intellectual um, intellectual exploration, or it is in the domain of arts and cultural diplomacy, I wanted to use in every opportunity and stage and role and guise, if you will, as, as a being, human being, to speak speak of peace, to speak of thrivability and beyond sustainability, to, to speak of the importance of women's leadership, to speak on these crucial issues on democratic systems um, and, and a, uh, an ethical advance in the technologies and science and social responsibility of science. These are the things that were most meaningful to me coming from this drastic and dramatic background to spread first and foremost 
a message of peace uh, and integration and elevation of consciousness. Beautiful. Beautiful. Thank you so Thank much you for so this much wonderful for long art, arch <laughs> that you painted for us. And I, I just uh, watched you um, dancing uh, on YouTube. What a beautiful expression of, uh, of yourself. So, yeah, it's really beautiful, very empowering. So our audience is uh, investors, business people, entrepreneurs. Um, can you help us understand how we can, you know, and as an academician, you're a member in the World Academy of Art and Sciences. What is your specialty? In what did you get your PhD and how uh, help our investors collect with, uh, with their inner self through through your work. Mm -hmm. Very good. My, uh, my expertise is actually um, in humanities. So speaking of the arches, right, the overarching um, perspective and comprehensive perspective on civilizational development, accomplishments, um, civilization of ideas, and everything that we have up to this point, backtracking our, our collective growth uh, through arts, through science, through political economy, if you will, and things like that. So it, it was literature and film studies and then developed into comparative literature and, uh, and humanities. But, you know, from, from there on, I felt that the, again, in, in, the, in, in the spirit of applying oneself in the world, I really felt that I wanted to be uh, more involved with economic thoughts, with economics, uh, with political economy, with uh, questions of sustainability and environmental intelligence, if you will, um, and really applied everything that I've learned through my studies and graduate studies forward into the co contemporary moment and address what the issues and challenges of the contemporary moment are uh, and draw on some lessons from history in order to understand what the implications would be for a different future, for the trending, uh, the way we trend forward, but not just on that kind of reactive path, but also more on the proactive um, path, which would be um, in the sense of future building, rather than just trending and understanding and, and surfing the trends, if you will. And with that, I have in 2008 with my brother, Dr. Sasha Popovich, who is the professor of economics in back in Montenegro, and he was gradually starting to be interested in, you know, the first phrases we have heard of economics of happiness and, you know, things like that. We had a profound conversation in which I really wanted to write a, a piece together, an article together with him, because I needed his expertise in economics um, coupled with my comprehensive view, civilizational view. Um, and we wrote a piece called Economics of Dignity, Growing People from Consumers to Members, which was basically discussing, you know, the post-mortem of postmodern economics. Um, and it was prophetic in the sense that it, that it felt that the crash was coming, economic crash was coming, because the values on which it was based um, were untenable unsustainable. And, you know, to, to start thinking about economics of dignity and start thinking of and looking at people, not at targeted, 
consumers to look at people not as reactive consumers, but proactive members of economies building ecosystems only actually staged what happened in the critical moment when the economic crash happened and then the flourishing of the heterodox economic thought after that. So we have heard variety of uh, steady state to economics of gift to even sacred economics. I mean, we have the proliferation of the economic thought that happened after, after that in the face of that global crisis spilling over from the US markets here. And at that time, I was presenting this uh, paper at a conference at which I did not know who's going to be in the audience, but apparently leadership of the World Academy was there. And since this is a, an honorary society, um, you only get in by nominations <laughs> based on a certain set of criteria. And um, I was approached by then the president, Dr. Ivo Schlaus, the president, a physicist, um, of the World Academy of Art and Science, which was founded by Einstein and Bertrand Russell and Oppenheimer and masterminds of such kind, uh, who's called for social responsibility of science in the middle of the Cold War era. Um, we were facing the same magnitude of critical state in the world again. And the World Academy is reaching out to the most forward-thinking, value-based, uh, finer consciousness um, thinkers and practitioners to gather uh, uh, experts from the world to, to kind of think together and, and do better in the world. And when I was approached and recognized that way brought into the academy, the academy actually opened up a marvelous global platform where to apply oneself and through its powerful programming, the key of which or the, you know, the, the, the major framework of which is called new paradigm of human development he had multitudes of facets included there, you know, such as law and governance and new economics and education and arts and, I mean, different facets um, to the collective human activity that needed to be addressed in a vitally interconnected way if we're going to move forward in a more wholesome way. Um, so this was the platform that allowed me to uh, not only put forth my ideas, which were seen as very progressive and, and future bound and um, sort of creative side to future making, right along with having the hand on the pulse, on the collective pulse of what was happening in the world. Not only was I able to put forth my ideas and my interests in research, but I also came into contact with absolutely the leading minds on the global scale today, um, which only amplified and exponentially developed me <laughs> um, as an intellectual and, and, and practitioner, my own leadership in the world, right along with the entire network of the people. So here comes, if you will, the very first um, insight. Right out of this story comes the very first insight that I could offer to our listeners and our friends and co-creators out there in the world, is this the, the law of the network, the law of, that says that you know the greater number of people that participate in a network exponentially uh, adds value and increases the value of the network itself. So if we stop for a second and think about what economies are, economies are means of 
generation, exchange, and distribution of value. That which in turn determines the sense and the price of wealth, well-being, and wisdom. Then we get to ask the question of what are the new and different ways of expressing economy in terms of those new values today? I mean, this is the question. These are the questions that need to be asked in some of the questions, big questions that need to be asked in every boardroom, at every investor's meeting. Um, and interestingly enough, the most progressive companies today are having on board in their part of their core team, people that are called CPOs, chief philosophy officers, even chief storytelling officers, right? This is a whole new refining and transformed way of approaching even marketing, outreach, partnerships, as well as the company's mission and vision. And, you know, these are the people that come exactly from backgrounds like my own, from humanities, from philosophy, uh, the visionaries that have a much broader understanding of the world, global, and then planetary movements and, and a sense of, like I said, the hand and the pulse of the social movement that determine the social context within which any um, fund or company functions. And if it's out of touch with the social context within which it's moving, then it's that it can do well, then it can be a living organization with breathable boundaries that can take in and give back out um, as a living organism that it, it is meant to be in order to preserve its vitality, in order to possess uh, uh, um, agility, in order to be relevant <laughs> and especially relevant for newer generations. So to ask those big questions and to have the team that is willing to zoom out with big questions before it zeroes in on the strategic moves is absolutely key to have the range and the spectrum of approach is fundamental. So, I mean, I can tell you, I mean, we can go on with multitude of these, um, multitude of these value attractors that I call them value attractors. They're going to attract the right kind of startup, the right kind of partners in a fund. They're going to attract the right kind of investment and, uh, and the like-minded people where the investment is not just a set of reporting uh, sheets in the end, but a set of rewarding relationships long-term that are generating abundance and more so also you know, generating a network of people, a circle of friends, if you will, with which you can enjoy the wealth generated and feel rewarded in return that you are bringing meaningful contribution and, 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 and creating a certain influence in the world uh, that, that is nurturing um, the full scale of humanity, that is nurturing the soul, that is nurturing the soil, that is nurturing society. And I know that from, from your work, Mariana, and, and from your um, fund and the way you have come to this place, we have recently had a conversation about, you know, interviewing your background. Um, I have known, I know, and you can vouchsafe 
for the quality of life one experiences when they're able to, uh, as you said, pay forward, give forward, and expand um, the scope of influence through the most meaningful investments that are uplifting the human spirit and enabling quality human activity. So some of these core values of the day, some of these organizing principles of the day that are going to determine tomorrow are increasing processes and technologies of decentralization and equally technologies that are not only disseminating in decentralizing way, but they're in drawing also collective knowledge and collect connecting all of the humanity's accomplishments so far and feeding those processes and that information into machines who are have the higher processing capacity, but they do not have the human creativity, but are enabling us to have at the palm of our hands uh, capacity to do research and to connect in unprecedented ways. We are witnessing high, heightened processes of democratization, of knowledge, of wisdom. And even though we have, you know, equally rising um, authoritarian tendencies, they're only, from what I'm seeing, because I am associated with, I'm, I am a futurist, and I am associated and, and, and endorsed by some key futurist um, associations, such as the Millennium Project and others, <clears throat> represented all over the world with incredible decades of track record. Um, those forces that are um, autocratic and authoritarian that are rising and springing all over the world, I can tell you that they're only going to accelerate the, the unprecedented democratic um, wave. And if, if only by reaction, but they will be the catalysts. Um, and the disdemocratization on a more benevolent level is witnessed in, you know, three-year-olds that are virtuosos on the violin or 92-year-olds who are eternal youth who are practicing yoga or teaching dance. So we're baffled by the way um, humans have naturally expanded their capacities and also artificial through the tool making, through the being the creatures of techne, we have expanded our capacities across the globe and expanded our naturally given um, faculties. There's going to be values of trust and transparency, values of authenticity and integrity, values of creativity and connectedness that are absolutely at the core of what the future holds in terms of um, social movements as well as economic trends. And if the company is not well equipped with this new values, core values um, that will you know, ensure its vitality, agility, leadership in the new domain, it is going to, in the best scenario, suffer tremendous loss or you know, deviate out of even possibility, out of the games as we have called them in the marketing terms. It, it will not be able to be the player um, anymore. And, um, you know, I have leaned on the work of some incredible women such as um, uh, Erica Karp, uh, who has shown through research, specifically in numbers, 
shown that, for example, if we are not investing in women and with women, the company is going to suffer uh, on the bottom lines, on all bottom lines. Uh, and that's shown in numbers and in trends. And she herself is running an investment company in New York and is a researcher, Dr. Erica Karp, for example. I love to honor these incredible women, such as friends that we share, such as the legendary uh, Hazel Henderson, and many who are now showing that um, within the increased environment of accelerated uncertainty, unprecedented complexity, uh, we are going to have to reach out uh, with the broadest scale connection, with the broadest scale uh, stakeholders for insight, for participation, for mobilization around these issues. Yeah, I couldn't yeah, agree more. Couldn't more. Can you give Can us, you give uh, us uh, more details on your activities around blockchain and um, AI as part of the, uh, the global women in blockchain activity that you're doing and how that translates into what you just said? That particular organization I helped build in its critical first months and, uh, and am not currently running myself that organization. But I have since, uh, I, I have, I like to be the connector, the neural, um, you know, fireworks, if you will, all over the world. And I love connecting people. So one of my passions is connecting organizations and institutions with higher platforms in order to create more unified and wider fields of, of change and transformation. Um, so in from there on, I've ventured into um, the, the hotbed of this um, technological thinking and innovation, which is Seoul in South Korea. And I've worked there with the renowned futurist, Professor Young-Suk Park, um, and dear friend now, um, on actually creating a women's blockchain foundation with some key investors, some leading um, forces and personalities that are leading this change in the world. So from there on, I kept working with, you know, organizing women across the tech as well. So there are multitudes of organizations out there now flourishing that are connecting women that have only been represented in, in, to the extent of four or 5% in techno world as well as in this domain. But what I've discovered along the way is there where you find these women, they're always forces of nature. They are tremendous in their accomplishments. They're tremendous in their drive and they're tremendous in their influence. So you have across the board, four to 5% of women represented in this domain. And yet uh, they are incredibly powerful probably because they had to prove themselves twice as much as their male colleagues, according to the um, conventional social uh, setting in which we find ourselves. And, and through that, the driving force uh, that's, that's within these women uh, have been, these women leaders in their domain have been unbelievable. And I thought how powerful it would be to collect that mind the, the the women, even at the level of four to five percent, if they are connected properly, then you're really switching on a collective mind that has been uh, 
unprecedented in the world. And sure enough, some of the connections have taken off in such profound ways. And I'm, I'm, I want to acknowledge again, even my connection to you, Mariana, and, and your work and what you are bringing through uh, your fund, uh, uh, through your philanthropic efforts, through your work at the Club of Rome, now in, within the World Academy of Art and Science. And we are from here on going together in New York um, for the initiative of future capital at the United Nations. Um, so that these are exciting um, exponential growth um, de developments and movements. So with women, what I've witnessed is, just as I've lectured um, at the Global Leaders Forum um, in, in Seoul, uh, in South Korea, I've I've, I spoke about this investing in women and with women and what you know, the the effects of that kind of mindset and that kind of investment focus would be. And it was absolutely mind-blowing uh, to recognize what happens, you know, with, with these networks that develop that are, like I said, exponentially more powerful. If we think... And these are some of the things that I would like to invite the um, the audience and your listeners to take into account, as I'm sure um, they already have taken into consideration a, a set of, of drivers that are, and I would outline them, mindset, military, markets, media, and money. The M complex, if you will. Um, that are the key drivers and they show up in, in, in certain areas in the world and at certain times, historical times, in a certain procession, in a certain way. If we were to actually examine every one of these areas and how they're transforming and how they're vitally interconnected, uh, we would have to de derive a whole new set of values with which we would have to go forward taking equally into consideration that there are developments in the world that are driving next to old mindsets, that are driving new consciousness movement, that next to military force are mobilizing huge social movements in the streets. Uh, next to uh, markets, now we have the communities that are arising, whether through struggle or in reaction to fall of the conventional markets, or simply by the need to rebond in more human-centered ways and generate economies from that arena. If we think of media next to the conventional uh, single channel um, and established media pouring of information or imparting of information, now we have diversity of perspectives and technologies of diversifying, democratizing those perspectives with albeit um, uh, dangers that go with it, but that's where exactly where we need ethical leadership. But we have to understand that in more on the broader global scale, we have increased capacity to draw on and project forward and broadcast individual perspectives from all over the world that can be heard and will be heard and have to be taken into account. And finally, next to money, um, we have um, diversity of asset creation Mind you, not only cryptocurrencies, but what that means that you have the encrypted, refined, ethereal, if you will, um, playing on the pun with the Ethereum, one of the most big, the biggest 
powerhouses in the crypto and blockchain world, we have the capacity to create assets and encrypt them in unique way that carry uh, unique individuated uh, um, frequency, if you will, encoding of a particular kind. So this is the broader context of which we have to think as investors, as economic drivers ourselves and agents of change. And to be more precise and to go to your question, my own associations have gone through multiple uh, futures focused um, associations and, and organizations such, of, such as, like I mentioned, the Millennium Project, such as Da Vinci Institute here in, in Colorado, where I currently reside in the US, and many others. <clears throat> and most recently, I have returned from an exceptionally powerful conference and truly unprecedented conference between IEEE, which is the largest professional association in the world, and its associations of electronics um, and electrical engineers and teachers of engineering uh, all across the world. So IEEE and the World Academy convened um, an unbelievable conference on cognitive informatics and cognitive computing and the future of VR as virtual reality, AIs, artificial intelligence, and all of these technologies. And it was amazing to see that IEEE has reached out to us as social scientists, uh, global thinkers, um, and humanities experts, if you will, um, to think together what are the value drivers of this new technology in, in complete realization that we need each other. We need each other. So, and it happened at the Politecnico di Milano, which is the one of the most renowned in the world, Polytechnic University of Milan at Leonardo da Vinci um, campus, most meaningfully speaking to the effect that we have to practice transdisciplinarity, that we have to have a comprehensive view of, of issues as well as the opportunities in the world. And there's this Renaissance man um, who, who is the mastermind and a giant on whose shoulders we stand that now is the time to re remember um, his accomplishments and come together in a more integral, transformative way. So this is my background and my interest in, in these topics. And in terms of artificial intelligence, I would really like to maybe just round off this insight. And you can ask, you know, more specific questions if you want. But um, I really want to alert people to um, this debate, this some almost um, unfair uh, dichotomizing debate of whether you're pro-technology or against technology, which is honestly leading us no nowhere, and it's fallacious debate, um, because we are creatures of, of culture and technology, and we're explorers, and the, we're the creatures of the mind, and we're going to continue exploring, and nothing's going to stop the technological and scientific inquiry. What we need to couple with that is um, basically consciousness development in order to match our ethical value drivers with our um, scientific probing and scientific advances, and they have to go hand in hand. It would be the same thing as if you gave a knife or a sword to a child and was flailing aimlessly with it, not understanding that he can cut himself and he can also cut a piece of bread for himself or herself. Uh, so the technology is there um, 
for us as a tool to use to what towards what end we use it with what what is the mindset behind the machine is the question that we have to ask and we stand a unique chance right now to uh in this formative stage for these new technologies collectively democratically find a way to direct those technologies to create better futures that are more inclusive that give capacity to greater number of people to free us from the drudgery of manual labor and and free up and unleash more creative work um, and accomplishments or we can easily also just like like we did at the time of the atomic bomb or at any other time, unleash the power of technology to empower um, an, a conventional old, um, what now has been called ego-based, greedy and narrow-minded um, and shrunken-hearted attitude of the old mindset of survival, uh, fear for survival. Easily we can weaponize that kind of mindset. So the question is profound. The responsibility is ours, and the time is now, for sure. Yes, you're speaking yes, from you're my speaking. heart. The question is, how do we do that? I mean, if you really look at the world right now, how, what percentage of uh, the people do have your mindset, an integrative uh, mindset, very evolved, very mm-hmm. uh, inclusive, and uh, what is the... Um, manifestation of the rest mm-hmm. and so that's um, that's the big question and this is why we're having these conversations how do we take these ideas and implement them on the ground and my approach through that uh, to that is through abundance creation building companies giving people work uh, using money guiding money influencing uh, economics to move away from for profit only orientation as a measurement criteria, a criterion to a uh, multiple bottom lines kind of criteria. Mm-hmm. So this is the basic, this is the most important question because it's, uh, I personally, I couldn't agree more with you. I mean, uh, you know that. <laughs> exactly. But the question that I find uh, the most difficult, not the question, the implementation is the most difficult one. Uh, mm-hmm. How do you change the systems that we have? Because as you said, the current systems are a direct reflection of our own uh, levels of consciousness. So obviously this is not serving us right now. Exactly. And how do we shift that? And uh, when are we going to reach the tipping point so that we, um, we don't die with uh, our ideas on our lips? And mm-hmm. I could not agree with you more. That's the, you know, the integration of all of these factors. Uh, yes, technology and as a computer scientist and artificial intelligence uh, expert, I, I am all up for applying technology to serve us, to help mm-hmm. us implement these ideas. Um, and uh, the question is, how do we... Because we're all born at square one. Uh, even the Dalai yeah. Lama or the Pope was born uh, as an egocentric, uh, egotistical boy. And yeah. uh, so we have to evolve. And the question is, how is your work, my work, our work contributing to that on the ground? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. That's, that's the most important question. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, if... It's, it sounds like even the the, the threat of the, of the of this um, environmental magnitude that we're facing is rattling a lot of a lot of us 
rattling our cages, if you will, self-imposed mental cages to understand that we're in it together, that we are floating on one boat uh, in this cosmic soup. <laughs> and it would be a, a, a sad, a sad story, a sad ending to our mythical, grand mythical, uh, you know, mind and story of where we don't understand that we're sinking our own boat and, you know, uh, setting our own mother on fire while complaining that she didn't make us a dinner. Yes, and uh, that's exactly the question. How, how do you, I mean, we should not kid ourselves. Um, you know, mm -hmm. a, a Trump, you know, he wants to make America great again. And he's taking the knife. And although he has the body of a 70-year-old, he has the mind of a two-year-old. So he, I'm not sure how wisely he is using, and I'm, I'm intentionally using these names because they need to be brought up. We need to become unpleasant. Uh, because otherwise nobody will look at it. And I'm willing to take all the uh, responsibilities and repercussions mm -hmm. that come along with that. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. You know, as long as we have an Orban and, and a Trump and uh, people let that happen uh, without standing, uh, you know, without understanding what's actually going on, uh, we will destroy ourselves. And, you know, nature doesn't, uh, Gaia doesn't need us. Uh, we're mm -hmm. actually, uh, we have proven that we are not, capable of, uh, of uh, stewarding the planet. And so the mm -hmm. question is, how are we going to, I mean, with all of these ideas and all these awakened people, you and I and WAS and Club of Rome and so on, they don't believe us. They don't trust, the, uh, you know, science. They uh, have the power and they are not doing what is supposed to be done to save ourselves. And so, mm -hmm. and now is, uh, you know, in addition to nuclear threat and to climate change, we also have AI on our fingers and the low, the egocentric mm -hmm. mindset that is in embedding, you know, this uh, egocentric bias into the newly developed, uh, developing um, expert systems and artificial intelligence systems and so on. So here we have uh, a third threat that is coming mm -hmm. our way. So. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, um. Yeah, I mean, speaking of the two-year-olds, I mean, this is the this is the deviated two-year-old. That this is the this is much, uh, yeah, much more complicated situation. One of the things that I've recognized and the value of this emergence of this figure, at, you know, and this establishment in the work in the White House, is for once we collectively in the U.S. and I change my we's and they's because I'm multi-positioned in the world and I am willing to take radical conscious responsibility of being here and being an, a naturalized American. We had to face all the dysfunctions that have been uh, shoved under the carpet somewhere, you know, uh, within the nice talk from the White House, within the White House and us as the White House here. Uh, we have to face the ugliness and everything uh, hit, uh, you know, um, and, and, and splattered everywhere that we have to face our darkest pockets where there, we've been infected with all kinds of reasoning and historical, um, you know, rememory of, of, of the violent uh, ways in which this society was put together. And I think it was time that it, it exploded. It exploded in very radical ways. But I always also remember that for every, um, for every narcissistic figure, there's another selfless figure um, rising in the world. 
um, I usually, I, I do not mention name just because I don't want to give them that energy, but now I can, or that attention <laughs> that they're craving. But um, for I can I can say now for every Trump there's a, a Greta, um, and the emergence of of an autocratic, um, outdated, um, spectacular reality TV show figure that is um, bent out of human shape, um, unfortunately, and is is a symptomatic of of an egotistical and narcissistic uh, deportment, um, which is fundamentally a psychosocial um, disorder, inability to bond, inability to empathize, inability to create a relationship, sustain it and, and feel for another, inability to feel uh, sisterhood and brotherhood and fellowship across the world. That's a human disorder. And it's actually, I'm being generous. It's a disease, if you will, in some terms. Uh, for every um, for every person afflicted by such psychosocial disorder, um, there is a selfless person of tremendous magnitude rising in the world. That we must remember in order to keep the fire of faith and courage burning within ourselves. What also worries me between these mass figures in, our, in the public eye is what happens, and I'm sure, Mariana, you'll ask the same question with me, what happens with in the middle with the broadest and biggest number of people in between those markers, extreme markers, right? Um, and that's where the massive mobilization has to happen. If we remember that we are beings on a scale, if we remember that with the same kind of uh, intensity, um, sincerity, commitment, we are applying ourselves to transforming 101 family and private relationships. And also the, if we apply the same sincerity and commitment on the broader scale relationships as the, the human fellowship, um, then we understand to uncork that kind of consciousness would be key to action in the world and to effective action in the world. And the only way we will be able to ignite people in a benevolent way and ignite them from within uh, would be to, 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 to walk with that compassion, to apply ourselves with compassion, to apply ourselves to the understanding that there is a disorder in the world. And if it's disorder, it, maybe it'll get treatment and it can be healed if a larger number of us uh, basically understood it that way and called it back to its its humanistic side as much as we can, but at least we can create a circle of humanity around um, individuals or institutions even, or agendas like that in a greater circle of humanity. On a practical level, uh, what I have found myself doing and which I, I would advise a child or student, uh, a partner, a professional colleague, um, a fellow human on any scale of human association. I would recommend some of these things that I understand have worked for me, but I have a sense that might work for others as well, because my goal is not to walk you know, this path alone. And my goal is actually to unleash this potential 
in others so that they can be more of themselves, that they can experience more of themselves, that they can offer more of themselves um, in the world, um, in their own unique gifts and in all their unique ways. Some of the strategies, if you will, that I have applied in my own life have been to diversify my interests. And just like I said at the beginning, at any stage, in any guise, in any capacity, if I can apply myself through folklore and dance and poetry, and I have multitudes of associations that I could share with you and the audience, whether that's a social movement called 100,000 Poets for Change uh, that was started in California, but it's now happening every year at the end of September in more than 157 cities all over the world. Poets are coming together, pulsing, sending that life signal on social change through arts, through social artistry, and generating in their cities as the hubs, innovative hubs all over the world. I mean, that's one of my associations, just to tell you in a very concrete way where I'm applying myself, but to also promote these wonderful ideas. So whether that's through dance, where people dancing, they don't talk and they stand a fewer chance of misunderstanding each other, but the music has been this wonderful um, leveler, if you will, and inspire all over the world. So whether that's dance and music and poetry and inspired speech, whether that's you know a platform at uh, World Resources Forum in Davos, uh, whether that's in the World Academy, at any level and scale of human association, I have gone out to associate with all walks of life. I have equally gone out and diversified my interests and skills so that I can speak as many languages and have as many means of communicating and mobilizing the hearts and the minds around these issues. So if one, there are some higher consciousness equations, if you will, if you apply them in this way, if you remember that, um, <laughs> if you remember that, if you apply yourself to even the smallest task with the highest possible consciousness, you hold the knowledge of the whole. If you know the total knowledge of a part, you'll also hold the knowledge of totality. If you walk into a field in an association and give of yourself and apply of yourself selflessly, understanding that you want to grow the field that you step into because that field will nurture back in exponentially you and everybody involved in it and exponentially produce abundance of you to speak and joy. These are some of the higher consciousness equations that the highest accomplished people in the world have known across ages. Now is the time that we disseminate this knowledge through technologies that are at our disposal, through human associations that are privileged um, on any scale. And in everyday life, we will be uncorking tremendous power of influence. I think it was... Maya Angelou that said, and I and I hope I'm paraphrasing this well, that she says that one awakened mind holds the equal power to more than millions of unawakened ones. And I know that in the Club of Rome and the World Academy and us as friends here, we're sharing a profound 
profound uh, concern that, but there's the leverage of the millions, right? That need to be both uh, awakened as well as we need to work on their behalf as well. That, that's, that is our fellowship in the world. I understand that. But we stand a chance through our means, through the power of our networks that exponentially give and offer. We stand a chance to, uh, 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 to leverage this influence. We stand a chance to truly shift. We stand a chance to live a more joyful life. But I also think we stand a chance to live in a more dignified way um, as people of means, intellectual means or financial means, and even with the people that have everything cushioned, if you will, with the with wealth, um, you know, no human being ever rests satisfied. There's divine discontent within us, within the human condition, that is the very evolutionary impulse to be more, to have more, to do more. But I think at this point, we really need to be focused on being more, becoming more with the largest number of people. And with that kind of understanding, no amount of wealth can generate ultimate satisfaction. And that we are ever, the, the, the horizon of, a, of accomplishment is ever receding in front of us. And that in that sense, every single one of us wants to leave some kind of greater legacy or live a life of significance. And, and we particularly have the higher responsibility and the higher aspiration, as well as the highest possibility to do that. And that legacy does not come from a single-handed application. That legacy is always resting in the hands of others vouchsafing uh, for us as benefactors. You're very wise you're and very you're very wise, right. You're very right. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much for for this insight. It's it's a leadership issue. And, yes. Uh, those of us who have um, awakened to a little bit uh, a wider sense of wisdom, uh, we carry the responsibility to represent those who have either the interest, nor the interest, nor the uh, talent to do that and uh, step forward. So I couldn't agree more with you. So um, thank you so we much. Rest, for we also have the responsibility, the loving responsibility to energize each other this way. And this is why I love what you're doing, Mariana. I mean, and I love, I'm so grateful for this invitation because you and I have personally, human to human, uh, energized each other uh, tremendously and, you know, found new friends um, and at the same time, with the technology, we're able to broadcast this message, this sense of understanding and compassion bonding that we have felt as, as, as leaders, as intellectuals, as practitioners, as women, even, you know, that we are able to multiply that and resonate that outward, right, and disseminate through your work, through your blog post, through your podcast. And, you know, in terms of you know, even when I when I advise, I mean, of course, when you're sitting in boardrooms or you're working with people, there is a specific um, set of strategies that you recommend to that particular organization or institution, right, or corporation or individual for personal excellence questions. And they are unique to that 
person's context. But more generally, I would say, if you really want to be future ready and and a living organization that thrives and that is an organization of meaning and true abundance of which you speak, I always say, look at a market, look at a market, look at an industry, look at a community that has an issue and look at the way the new technology and your own resources in terms of networks, network making technologies, network uh, sourcing technologies can offer a solution for it. So look at that, look at a market industry or community, identify an issue and look at the way these new technologies and new ways of connectivity and communication can offer a solution. Then seek exactly that which neither blockchain or AI can ever solve. So first do that and then find exactly that which none of them will ever be able to solve. And then use those technologies of consciousness and conscientiousness to refine the artificial intelligence and the technology to ever finer means to serve integral social trans- transformation. So while you know the blockchain and AR are the new technology, new humanity is the goal. Yeah, and for for that you have to have an understanding. You have to have had some means to see what it means to have an open heart. And uh, if you look at people and how we collectively, and I'm sorry that I have to be the, how should I say, the devil's advocate here, how our society shows up and uh, how the media keeps insisting on showing us how unfulfilled and how bad we are and how negative Uh we are uh and how many negative things we do, then uh, we, uh, it's easy to fall into the trap of believing Uh that we're not complete. And uh, Uh then, and we use technology in the same means rather than grow to be who we really are to mm-hmm. take the form of the divine that is in you know lies dormant in in all of us as you said the um, we are the products of our minds now this mm. mind is malleable and yes. uh, it's you know it's what you put in there is what you get out and so unless you have, uh, you are part of a group like the ones that, you know, you just mentioned Club of Rome, whatever, WAS and uh, other, you know, women organizations or the UN and so on, where people keep in, uh, purposely empowering each other, uh, then it's rather easy to fall prey to the social conditioning that tells mm-hmm. us, or, or churches for that mean, religion that tells mm-hmm. us that mm-hmm. unless mm-hmm. you're a member of some party or some religion and so on, you're not complete. And so mm-hmm. how do we, I mean, the reason why we're having these conversations is to open up uh, new views and new insights into a different way of looking at yourself as a human being and the world and empowering yourself and, uh, and seeing the truth rather than right. become blinded by those who want us to be dumb and stupid and uh, fulfill their dreams, not ours. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's one of those big, big questions and fundamental root causes that you, that you asked. Um, 
I, it's interesting. I'm remembering right now as you're, you know, putting this forth, I'm remembering a piece some years ago that I've actually published with the Club of Rome, through the Club of Rome, that was discussing, you know, this, this entire discourse, catastrophic discourse, and realizing that we constantly are oscillating between the push and pull of threat and seduction, you know, that's actually serving... Um, to, to, to take us away from a chance of waking up to the actualities of our lives and the, the agents that are running um, this kind of mindset. Um, and and we, like you said, we easily fall prey uh, because it's always the discourse, the spectacular discourse of some massive threat, which we now brought into existence, but always some disasters or always like we've mentioned, reality TV show and utter superficiality and distraction from any capacity. Both are keeping us away from each other. Both are keeping us so small and shrunken and terrified uh, that one leads with this, you know, uh, intoxication or toxic, toxicity actually, toxic numbing. Um, and the other, which is addictive, which is fetishistic and addictive. And the other is just keeping us in a state of, of uh, hyper threat uh, of our own survival that makes us incapacitated equally to, to, to reach out, to bond, to commune in a more joyful and creative spirit. And in that sense, what we have witnessed globally in reaction to what is being poured onto us and we have, our, our, our daily realities, our hours, waking hours are inundated with that kind of material and what some colleagues, and including myself, have we have called violently pornographic culture um, for a variety of reasons. It would take a whole other conversation to unpack just that phrase, which would be very potent to unpack. But we're kept oscillating between those push and pull, between punishment and reward. And if you even think on the scale of our education, that's all we know. Even that, it's a very abusive system that we have created and to continue to stay in, it might have served a certain person per purpose up to a certain point, but now it's exceptionally destructive and violent and abusive. So between the push and pull of threat and seduction, um, you have masses of humanity that have fallen into indifference and kind of throwing arms up in the air saying, what can I do? How possibly can I make a change? Forget this in the, in the street language, if you will. And there's the other massive, also critical um, aspect of humanity that resorted to fundamentalism and terrorism in its extreme form, thinking that this has to be blown up to pieces. But fundamentalism, and I think there's that's why it's so potent that you mentioned religious um, imposition of, of, of institutionalized religion as mind control, equally as it is the media of that, what I will, what I will say, um, what I will make us realize and breathe for a second, if we think that we have not mobilized for good as much as we have used the means, technological means to mobilize for bad and for threat, um, we can equally be terrified or we can say, wow, that that means that there's such a tremendous potential out there that we have the responsibility to connect 
into a synergistic network of goodness and good practices and wonderful communities and well-meaning people and well-concerned people uh, that are eager to connect. We have not yet um, created uh, 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 or connected that collective mind for goodness and for good news that would inundate us in a way and flood us with goodness and, and have us mobilized in a way that we say, my God, we can, we are reaching that critical mass of which you speak. It's there. It hasn't been as well connected, as well supported also or directed as, as the other with such precise knife, you know, sharp precision that we've experienced into the social, into the social body, the fragile and vulnerable social body. But now we have the capacity of healing, the capacity of connecting. And on this is why it would make more sense why I was saying earlier, I love to connect things into more unified fields and why it's so meaningful that you and I met as, and as nodes of much larger networks, each of us, we are able to create a much, much larger, again, exponentially effective network. Every single one of us is a microcosm with a network of relationships if we bring those forces and resources forward and we connect in goodwill, good spirit, in compassion, in, in devotion to, to the world and to this lifetime of service, my goodness, what we stand chance to do. And we do stand chance to do that. So you see, I think we have in front of us enormous resources, enormous. I mean, we're not lacking money in the world. We're not lacking food in the world. It's ridiculous. It's how it's divvied up. It's how it's distributed and what are the means of its distribution and control that are the question. There's plenty of abundance out there. How can a country like the, the Congo be hungry? It's the absurdity. It's the disease of the egoic attitude and the greedy agenda that wants everything, you know, hoarded that can leave anybody in the richest country in the world, such as the Congo, hungry. It's insane. So that's why I call it a disorder and disease of which we need to heal ourselves. So we're not lacking resources, technological, financial, intellectual even. What we are lacking is bonds. And two things that are key for me. One is unique ways of connectivity meaning the technology that is truly going to continually be democratized and accessible to everybody and generous platforms for connectivity and convening spaces, convening associations that are of this mindset, convening spaces and unique ways of convening that are profoundly egalitarian inclusive, where everybody's point of view we understand that without including everybody's point of view, we'll never have the totality of perspective and the truth and the wisdom that we seek for our, for truly um, life of well-being for all of us. And the mindset of unity that hurting another, you are hurting your own soul and unavoidably will have to feel the repercussions of one's own actions on pronouncement of judgment or otherwise. So the, the consciousness of unity, the convening spaces, the convening methods, as well as means of connectivity, they're all inclusive, are going to be absolutely vital and 
are absolutely vital for for this shift, for the grand civilizational shift. And that is why we're seeing the flourishing of initiatives that are focused on, say, conscious capital and as, as such, as consciousness as the most powerful creative force and capital as constructive resource um, to make this change. And in the domain of both, you, Mariana, have made uh, pushed some incredible fronts and shifted the limits and and with tremendous generosity and as well, you know, generosity of worldview that you have, as well as generosity of applying yourself and affecting that change through the means that are that you have generated with uh, with your family, um, with your husband and with your company and with all of your networks. And um, the reason I keep going back to you is to mirror back uh, the capacity of one person. And I know that the discomfort and the dissatisfaction is always going to be there because even when we pass on through the grand individual transition onward, uh, we'll always say it hasn't been enough. It hasn't been enough, right? I could have done more. I could have done more. But that's the part of this evolutionary impulse. And uh, we have to mobilize for good with the same kind of focus and zeal and not allow the you know, even the disheartened and 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 um, attitude to 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 have to claim that to reach out to friends when we are down. It's only normal that we are down or disheartened, and the world gets to us. But that we have the capacity to reach out to friends like you and I are here today and say, "Tell me, make me, remind me who I am, remind me of my capacities, remind me what I'm made of, remind me." that I'm a powerful creator and even more so powerful when we come together like this. We must, we must, must uplift the human spirit and, and inspire the human mind and awaken the human heart because how much more delightful is a conversation like this and a sharing like this than anything else that any, any other thing can possibly offer. So to understand the push and pull of indifference and fanaticism, and fatalism as well, fatalistic thinking and giving up, as well as disheartened moments, they're okay when they're moments, to understand that we've been polarized repeatedly and to refuse that polarization, understanding that we are a being on a spectrum, that we are multi-connected, that we are interdependent, that we are co-becoming, that we are indwelling <laughs> and in-belonging, that we are creatures of multiple gifts, that we have multiple domains and roles in which we can apply ourselves, that is the remedy. And that is one of the pathways. And we all apply ourselves with our gifts in the world to the best of our capacity. Imagine offering that that way. Yeah, I guess I'm, I'm hearing imagine of, of, of the Beatles that have pushed us through one cultural movement through the 60s, we are ready for another one. And through the 80s that has happened in, in 89 and the, you know, the, the fall of the Berlin Wall, we are ready for other walls to fall. And I think those are probably running through our hearts now. Amen. Amen. What a beautiful, what way, a beautiful to way to end this beautiful interview. <laughs> Thank you so much. I could listen to you forever. 
you are very wise and very empowering and uh, very positive. And uh, it's an honor and a privilege to know you and have you in my life. And I wish you wonderful, you wonderful evening and day, Ashley. <laughs> uh, thank you for being on the program. It's amazing. You know, it is virtual, but you are holding, we are holding our hands basically together in, in an embrace of our being. And I just want to thank you. I want to thank all of your associates, your family, and all of your associates, all of the people that are listening and will be listening to this so that, the, so that you and I together from this bond and this wonderful exchange of a meeting of the heart of my, and mind, uh, that we can radiate out the goodwill and the, and the good motivation to apply ourselves in the world. Thank you so much, Mariana. You are definitely a global leader in that way and a heartly, enheartened leader that way. I'm only your mirror, you beautiful um, um, <laughs> Mila. Um, have a wonderful day. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Goodbye. For more information on Dr. Popovich, visit milapopovich.com. That's M-I-L-A-P-O-P-O-V-I-C-H.com. Link is in the show notes. For more on Dr. Bosazan and the investment turnaround, visit investment-turnaround.com.